What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. And one of the top seven fun educational podcasts, according to a recent Fast Company article. Yes, that's right. Yours truly was nominated in Fast Company as one of the top seven fun and educational podcasts. So tell a friend, okay? Tell them that we're doing things over here. This week on the show, we're going into a topic we've only covered once. And I think it's such a perfect time with all that's happening in the financial markets and what in the world is going on with houses. Are they going up, down? And you've probably been thinking, should I invest? Should I buy an Airbnb? Should I, uh, I don't put it in the stock market. What should I do? This one will help. This week on the show, we talk with Avery Carl. Avery is an award-winning American real estate agent. She's an investor and she's an author. She's the founder and CEO of The Short-Term Shop, a real estate firm that specializes in guiding investors through the process of buying and selling investment properties specifically in the short-term rental market. Now, if you don't know what that stuff means, this is your episode, because you should. This is a wave, people, and I have been wondering about it, and Avery breaks it down in the most understandable, simple, no-nonsense way. I'm telling you, she had me thinking, it's time to invest, and I've been weighing it ever since. Avery is also a podcaster. You can hear her at her own podcast called The Short-Term Show. And she is the author of the book, Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Income. Check her out at her website, theshorttermshop.com. 
Excited to bring this one to you. If you like what you hear, let us know. Smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. So let's get smarter, perhaps make some money in the process. Here it is, our episode with Avery Carl, as we talk about the ins and outs of real estate investing. Enjoy. I feel like you hit the gold rush right before the rush. Do you think that's true? Do you feel like you made it just before everyone else heard about it? Yeah, I uh, I do. And at the time, I felt like I was late to the party. And it turns out the party was just getting started. I do. I, I did definitely start buying at the right time. So we're going to talk about real estate investing, rentals and things. But a lot of the lessons we learn can be carried across multiple industries. And you just said something right there that is impactful, which is you already felt you missed the boat. And real estate is just one of those things. It always feels like that. It always feels like it used to be the time. Do you think, though, we are at a point in time where that's the case, where like, you know, we missed the boat if we haven't done what you've done already? No, not at all. I mean, the best time to buy real estate was always yesterday or 10 years ago, or depending on who's saying that quote, might be a different number. But the second best time is today. Um, I think trying to time the real estate market is like trying to catch a falling knife. Like, you know, the general direction that it's going. But if you grab the wrong end, you're fine. If you grab the other end, then, you know, you cut the hell out of your hand. So um, I don't necessarily think that anybody's missed the boat. Everybody's always going to have paid less than what you're about to pay, regardless of where we are in the economic cycle. But you do have to be a little bit more creative, more selective with your deals. So you are actively acquiring, which means you must have some faith in where this market's going. Yeah, I closed 68 doors last week. So three apartment buildings. Were you in real estate? Were you doing residential real estate in the, you know, 2008 time frame when it all exploded? Unfortunately, no, I was 20 at the time. So I was at the bar. Do you? (laughs) I was too, but I was a little (laughs) older than 20. Um, I'm sure you've at least talked to people uh, during that time frame. You know of it. I have this deep scarring from that time period. I worked in commercial real estate at that time, didn't own a house, but it's always lingering in the back of my mind that that can happen. And even as of today, when one of my honest goals for this year was to buy a rental property, I don't know if I have the guts to pull the trigger because I'm just so nervous that I'm going to look back one year from now and look like the biggest fool. What do you say to people that are kind of calling back to those, you know, 2008 era? It's really hard to say. I got a C in economics at UT, so (laughs) um, I can't, you know, speak to it with any level of real intelligence, but Uh, I don't think that we're going to have another 2008. Of course, we're going to have another correction. It's kind of starting to happen right now. But there's a difference between a normal cyclical correction and 2008. And I mean, I have, I didn't own real estate in 2008, but I do have some scars from that myself. So I graduated in spring of 2009 from college, which is the worst time in the history of the world to graduate and start looking for a job. So, um... It's definitely something that I think is always going to be in the back of all of our minds who live through it and were affected by it in some way. But I don't think that's any reason to 
not buy something, you know, maybe don't go buy a $500 million apartment building. Uh, but you know, you, if you start with just a hundred thousand dollars, single family long-term, that's, you know, that's safe as safe as any investment can be. But I mean, anything can happen at any time. Like, uh, the Gulf of Mexico is like a quarter of a mile behind me and Godzilla could technically come up out of there at any time. So anything can happen. And, um, I think it's best to make decisions based on what happens 99% of the time than to never do anything because of what can happen 1% of the time. That's a really good point. And I just, I love talking about this idea of risk and reward and investing when it comes to real estate, because it is the most clear, tangible investment vehicle that so many people know about. So it's such a good uh, window into our psyche and our risk aversion or risk tolerance based on the person. Yeah, I agree with that. So much I want to get into. Let's start with what you do. You know, I'll talk about it a little bit in the intro, but give me the, you know, one minute blip on who you are and uh, where you're currently at with your business and your real estate investing career. Sure. So I have a lot of things. <laughs> I got my iron in a lot of fires. Mm -hmm. uh, so I own 189 doors personally. Uh, no, that's not including any syndications or partners, just myself and my husband. Eight of those are short-term rentals. I was able to get from zero to 189 doors over the course of about five and a half years because five of our first six purchases were short-term rentals. So we were able to use all that heavy cash flow to snowball more quickly. I also have a book, book out called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. Uh, you can pick that up on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books Million, uh, Bigger Pockets Bookstore, anywhere you get books. I also have a podcast called The Short-Term Show where, surprise, we interview short-term rental owners. And I'm also the CEO of The Short-Term Shop. So we are the nation's leading and largest short-term rental-specific real estate team. So we're not technically a brokerage because we're under the larger EXP umbrella, but um, largest uh, short-term rental-specific sales team in the country. You said a lot of words there. Is this not bigger pockets? So I'm going to dig in. First of all, what what acronym was that? EXP, RP something? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, EXP is a real estate brokerage, uh, not too much different than like a Keller Williams big ah, nationwide brokerage. Gotcha. I get in trouble if I don't say that. You're not allowed to. It's against the real estate commission uh, uh -huh. regulations if you market yourself as a brokerage when you are in fact a team underneath the brokerage. So, hmm. um, you know, that one's for anybody who's waiting out there to trip me up yeah. on that. I will not be tripped up. What made you get into real estate? I mean, you're fresh out of college. You just saw the worst crash that any of us have seen. You're in a job market that is terrible. I remember it very well. And did you just go, well, this this seems like it'll make sense? No, it was probably another seven or eight years. Yeah, seven years before that happened. So I had always played in bands, played in rock bands, played in punk rock bands and sloppy rock and roll bands. <laughs> and so couldn't get a job when I got out of college. So I was bartending and I just said, well, I'll just keep playing. And so I played in quite a few, uh, an all girl punk band that the name is not safe for work. So you can Google <laughs> it later. Uh, and then toured, I played guitar and bass in a bunch of different, um, different projects toured the U S a few times, Europe, a few times, Japan. So just really leaned into that. Cause I was like, well, you know what? I'm given this opportunity to where it's impossible to get a job. So I might as well go do something really, really fun while I'm waiting on that to, to turn around. So bartended and played music, uh, lived in Los Angeles, New York city, and then met my husband in New York. He owned a bar 
and uh, we moved to Nashville in 2013. And I was like, all right, it's time to go back to school. Um, not necessarily done with music, but I'm done like doing that in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so went and got my master's at Belmont University. And my husband and I were, when we were looking for a house to buy, because moving from New York to Tennessee, at least back then, you're like, oh, wow, I can actually buy a house. That's crazy. So uh, our real estate agent at the time was really trying to get us to buy in this super hip, fast appreciating area of Nashville called East Nashville. And we were like, no, we came from Brooklyn. We, if we're moving to Tennessee, we don't want to move from the capital of the hipster world to the Tennessee capital of the hipster world. We want to move out in the country. So we bought a house out in the country, but then we thought like, well, she was saying how much money all these houses are worth after like only two years of ownership. And maybe, maybe we should do that. Let's just buy one of those. And then Maybe one day when our future kids have to go to college, it will have appreciated enough that we can just sell it and pay for that rather than having to come out of pocket. Like We thought we were the biggest geniuses ever. Mm. Uh, Didn't even know that was a really stupid reason to invest in real estate. (laughs) Uh, But we did. And the house that we bought was actually a really good one. The mortgage on that was about 650 bucks a month. We were able to rent it for 1600 bucks a month. So not bad cash flow for a single family long term. And then from there, we thought, okay, this is something we want to make a business out of. Let's learn about this. And then we started actually educating ourselves on the money we just spent. And um, so we had just one little bit of down payment left for one single family. And we thought, well, what can we buy that's going to make us the most amount of money, the fastest? We landed on short-term rentals, Airbnbs. We said, well, we don't want to do this in Nashville because the regulations were just changing all the time. Everything was getting banned. And we said, we don't want to mess with this. We want to buy somewhere where it's the normal thing for people to just go rent a house or a cabin or a condo. Let's do that. So we went to the Smoky Mountains in East Tennessee because we had just been there and stayed in a cabin on vacation. And we thought, well, everybody goes there and stays in cabins and somebody owns these things. Why can't it be us? So we bought one, figured out how to manage it ourselves from Nashville. So we didn't have to pay a property manager 40%, which was the standard back then. Mm. And the rest is history. (laughs) Wow. How did you manage it with that level of distance in between? So that's actually what our entire business at the short-term shop is now, is we teach our clients how to self-manage remotely. So if they buy with us, we teach them how to do it. Uh, But we just knew, okay, this person wants 40% of our gross. And I'm trying to think of a way to put this without sounding condescending a lot of okay. the uh, <laughs> a can, lot of the property not condescending want. to you right a lot of the property management companies out in the smokies were really really mom and pop and really really old school like mm. don't know what airbnb is don't know what vrbo is they hardly use the internet so we were like well these people managing it next door cannot be any better than us managing it virtually from three hours away and with airbnb and vrbo we were just kind of figured out how to do it. There weren't all these gurus and courses you could take when we started. We had to figure it out. Uh, but really, you just need a good cleaner and a good handyman and everything else you can automate with property management software. But we didn't have that when we started. So we had to had to use some workarounds. But it's really easy now with property management software. Yeah, it's so funny as you were telling this story. So as I mentioned, the goal of mine is to to buy one. Now, if I buy one, maybe more. But really, I've my whole life, I believe in learning through doing. So it's like, all right, that's a education. Maybe I'll make some money. Maybe I won't. And as I went down the rabbit hole, all I kept seeing was Smoky Mountains everywhere, (laughs) every course, every YouTube buying the Smoky Mountains. But that's like in the last 12 to 18 months. 
you made this purchase, when was that? Five years ago? Four years ago? Yeah, mid-2016. I mean, I just can't get over. Like, how much do you attribute to luck? There was definitely a lot of right place, right time for me, like a lot. So I would say 50% luck. But uh, I mean, the opportunity was right there for anybody else who lived in that market or any market. You know, like I live in Destin, Florida now, same kind of thing, but it's at the beach. Like anybody could have done it, just nobody did. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and that's what I want to highlight. I, so my brother lives in California. Uh, We went to, Joshua Tree on a little camping adventure, probably 10 years ago. And I remember we went and we said, wow, this is a great place. And we're renting a place and this, that, and the other. We didn't see it. We'd be millionaires by now. Joshua Tree is another one of those places. So when I, when I ask you about luck, I say it with the realization that it's both. What is it about you, your personality, your experience that allowed you to recognize the opportunity? Uh, I think for me, it was more that the vacations that we took as kids were always to places that were these regional drivable vacation markets where you stay in a house rather than a hotel. So like my parents, I'm from Mississippi. My parents don't like to get too far outside of their little Mississippi bubble. Uh, like they will not, they won't go to Mexico or to the Caribbean or anything. And when you're like, why? They're like, no, no, we got our passports and stuff. They just won't make the effort to get further than a certain radius from Mississippi. So anyway, we would always come to the beach down here in Destin and we always rented a big house. And so growing up, rather, since I wasn't raised going on a bunch of vacations and staying in hotels, it just occurred to me faster because that's the way we vacation. That's actually the way everyone vacations when they come to this area or come to the Smokies. So for me, it was always just like right there top of mind because we didn't really ever stay in hotels. So it wasn't this big, crazy thing to buy a house and rent it out uh, for vacationers. It was like, that's what people did. So Mm. yeah, it just kind of came to it organically. Let's get into the business of it. So many people, it's on the top of their mind. And we have covered this once to date in 400 episodes. So if somebody missed that one, then they might've missed it. But how do you differentiate between short-term rental and every other type of rental? So technically a short-term rental is anything less than 30 days. But for me, I focus on vacation rentals. So I only buy in vacation and tourism markets. I don't buy my short-terms in metro markets. But the technical term, if you're going to buy in any type of market, would be less than 30 days. Gotcha. Okay. So with that, you have the short-term shop. Your book's on short-term, podcast is on short-term. But you just mentioned that the vast majority of your holdings are not in short-term. Tell us what that is and why you made that decision. Up until recently, up until about last year, we've made some really big apartment building purchases in the past year. But up until then, even though we had about 100 doors of long-term and only eight of short-term, the dollar value of each, it was about 50-50 because mm. a good short-term is going to be more expensive. Like I've got two, a beach house that I paid 900000 for. Well, you're probably never going to pay 900000 for a single family long-term. Not one that's going to make any sense anyway. Right. So for us, when we bought our first short-term, the goal was not to build a whole empire of short-terms. The goal was to build our portfolio as fast as possible. So we've used our short-term rental income kind of like as a cash flow turbocharger to be able to get into the, we own a bunch of single family and duplex, but also really to get into the multifamily space. So 
Uh, I think that it's really important to have a diverse portfolio. There are a lot of gurus out there that'll tell you, you know, buy two or three short-term rentals and quit your job. Don't do that. (laughs) Not good advice. Uh, Keep your job for as long as you possibly can to fund your purchases. So you have that W-2 income for as long as possible and then quit it. Don't just run off and quit in your first six months before you've even owned anything during an off season. Um, So for me, it was important to have a diverse portfolio and I'm still buying short terms. Uh, Like I was under contract on one until about two weeks ago, it fell out because there were insurance problems. You couldn't get insurance on it, but Mm. uh, we're still always, you know, kind of looking if a good one pops up, we'll get it. But we have our short term machine kind of rolling in our couple of vacation markets that we invest in personally. We have our single family rehab machine rolling in another Southeastern, like mid-sized metropolitan area. And then our multi-machine rolling in the Midwest. So we've got three going at a time. Don't try and do it all at once. Um, Do one thing at a time, but we've got our three silos kind of, and they're all just kind of rocking now. They're just, just buying themselves basically. By now you've probably heard about microdosing. And if you haven't, Hop online and just search around a little bit, and you'll find all sorts of people talking about microdosing to feel healthier and perform better. Personally, I'm one of those people. Our show today is sponsored by Microdose Gummies. Microdose Gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And let me tell you what, these things taste and feel amazing. My favorite right now are the orange cream cookies. They're absolutely delicious. I've used them to help me get in the zone when I'm doing creative work. And let me tell you, before bed, they help me wind down, chill out, and sleep like a baby. If you've got stress throughout the day, whether it's work, family, whatever, and you take one of these things at night, it's the perfect way to end the day and just wind down. Bottom line, these are a 10 out of 10 for me. Microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, just do a quick search online or go to microdose.com and use our code SMART to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can also be found in the show description, but again, it's microdose.com and use the code SMART. And now back to the episode. You said a couple of things there, and I love talking to... uh, not only experienced, but successful entrepreneurs, because some of the lessons, they seem so obvious to you because you've been living in it for so long, but I don't know if you recognize what you have learned the hard way and other people struggle with. So one of the things is don't try and do it all at once. So many people, myself often included, sit and say, I want to own real estate and then start to think about, but can I afford 10 houses? Do I know how to run every aspect of an Airbnb? Do I know how to find rentals instead of things like what makes a good investment? How did your journey go? And then how would you use the knowledge from that journey to help others who are considering it? So for me, it translates over really easily since we train all of our clients, all of our buyer clients on how to manage their short terms. So we're like, this is how we did it. This is exactly how we did it. And we're about to show you exactly how. So, you know, use this knowledge for good and um, do it yourself. And I think really the only reason anybody would not be able to get as far as us is just because they're living off of their rental income rather than rolling everything back into buying more real estate. 
every time I see a real estate, or it could be anything really, it could be like TikTok, the people you were talking about. I go, if it's so good, why teach others to do it? Right. And so I'm curious, like, why not just spend all your time investing in real estate? Well, because real estate is one of those things where there is plenty of it for everyone. And by teaching someone else how to do it, you're not creating competition for yourself. You know, the very, very small percentage of people in the U.S. who are real estate investors could not possibly ever own all of the houses or even enough of a percentage of all the real estate to be in competition with each other. Let's just take a look at the ones you mentioned. So you've got your short term kind of Airbnb. You've got uh, some rehab type property, single families, some maybe some multifamily, long-term rentals, all that stuff. Which one do you think as of right now is the least risky? Um, I would say probably the single families, the single family rehabs. They're the cheapest. They're the easy. They're well, depending on which way you go about it, they're, they're the easiest to finance and they're going to be the easiest to unload if you were to ever have a problem. I gotcha. Meaning you could sell those because single family, there's so many people in that market. Right. So if you're selling an apartment building, only investors are going to buy that. But if you're selling a single family, you've got investors, you've got primary home buyers, you've got all kinds of people. Okay. So can you walk us through what it might look like to invest in a single family home? Yeah. So for me, we've done it in two, mar three markets, I guess. Uh, we keep kind of having to recalibrate markets because the deals dry up. Other people, like other, a number of other investors kind of discover them. And, uh, but typically we like to keep our single families like under 130,000. Mm -hmm. Uh, we put 20% down on those. Usually we prefer that they, they need a little work and that there's a little room for, uh, improving that after repair value ARV, but we don't do like a full burr on anything, which for those of you who don't know, buy rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Uh, we don't ever really refinance. We just like to leave our equity in it. Cause we're not, we've got enough cash now that we're not having to like pull all this equity out of other places to buy stuff we have in the past and have paid all that off. And now we are just able to self fund it, but, um, we buy them, put a little rehab in them, make them really nice places to live. Because uh, we always think, like when we're looking at these, we're like, man, you know, somebody's having their Christmases in here. Somebody's having their family dinners in here. And we want it to be a nice place. So I know a lot of investors just, you know, bare minimum, spend as little as possible. But we do like to make our places nice for people. And um, so we make them worth a little bit more money, leave that equity in them, and go buy another one. When we're talking renovating a place... I've heard about this idea for a couple of years now, and I always wonder, like, what does that mean? Are we trying to find an extra bedroom? Are we trying to add a pool? Or are we just doing some cosmetic, maybe some tiling and things like that? For me, I'm probably never adding a pool to a long-term rental. Short-term rental, I'll add a pool all day. I won't say that I wouldn't add a bedroom, but for me, I just want something that looks really ugly because it's not that terribly expensive to put in nice floors, get it nicely painted, nicer countertops, and make it a nice place to live. I'm not necessarily trying to find something that needs a really big rehab that would require, you know, knocking out walls or building walls, things like that. I'm looking for more of like the ugly houses that people don't really want to buy. What is the maybe average renovation budget look like? 
I would say between five and 15,000. Some of them are pretty ready to go. They just need to be painted. Some of them just need floors. We usually put like an LVP in there. We don't put anything too crazy. And uh, we've been putting like a nice, our um, contractor does these nice looking butcher block ca oh. uh, countertops yeah. and they're really affordable and they're pretty durable and more durable than you would think. So we've been doing those in quite a few of them. Uh, but I would say between five and 15, you know, a lot of them need roofs and HVACs and stuff like that, but some of them really just need paint. So let's say I buy one of these and, and this really goes for everything, but I'm always curious, how do I find renters? How do I find good renters? How do I trust them in this house? Like that portion makes, I don't, even with a finance degree, it still makes no sense to me. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, you, we have, unlike our short terms, we have property managers for our long terms and, um, you can kind of tell, I mean, references are a big one. They're past landlord references. So if the past landlord says they had 17 dogs in the house when it wasn't supposed to be a pet friendly and the dogs chewed up all the, chewed it down to the studs, well, it's probably not somebody you want to deal with. Um, but references and if you find a really good property management company, then they can take a lot of that headache off your plate. What type of rental income are you looking for on this, on this, in this example? So if, if it's like a, let's say like a hundred thousand, 125, really up to 130, I just need it to do like five, 600 bucks a month cash flow. So after the mortgage and mortgage on something like that is probably like 500 bucks, 600 bucks, yeah, something, something like, like that? that. Okay. So maybe, maybe we're renting it for a thousand. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes 1200 uh, okay. rents are creeping up a little bit, but yeah, for this example about there. Apologize for the ignorance on this. I have some ideas, but I have to ask you people who can pay $1,200 in rent. Why don't they just buy the house? That is a really good question. A lot of people either can't qualify, don't have the right kind of income or can't really show it. Like there was a time that I was making over a hundred thousand dollars a year bartending, but it was all cash. So I should have been able to qualify for something, but I couldn't show it. Hmm. Uh, so there's any number of reasons or they don't plan to stay there forever. Or me, um, back when I was making that bartending, it never occurred to me to buy a house because back then I thought, well, if I'm not going to buy like this really nice house, like what my parents have, then why on earth would I buy a house? Why well, don't want to buy a junkie house? So I think a lot of people just think that they're not there yet. They're still in their rental phase. So well, a number of different, th different things. You make it sound so easy. Tell me what I'm missing. Cause I'm about to go like on the Zillow search Ohio somewhere and just buy a $150,000 house. Well, uh, people in general suck. Um, tenants, guests, if it's an Airbnb, uh, clients in some cases, like anytime you're dealing with a general public, there is going to be a certain level of emotional toll that it's going to yeah. take on you. So, um, that's, it's really easy to go do it, but it's the managing through the emotional toll of like, oh, why would this person do this? That's that's like the number one thing that comes up every single day that I say in my head is, why would you do that? Mm. And um, I think just people are generally <laughs> kind of bad. I, I look, I I mean, as much as I like to see the good in people, I could see being a landlord is one of those things where I don't. I mean, I remember renting houses straight out of college, and I can't say I'm proud of what happened in those houses. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
How do we do market research? You were mentioning, I think, especially now with so many people in the market, right? And we'll get into, I want, I want to spend a good amount of time in the short-term piece, but this is an interesting one. So whatever we're looking at, maybe it's single family, how do you determine what market we should be in and things like that? Well, <clears throat> you want to look at markets where the rent makes sense for the price of the houses. So like a market like San Francisco is going to be really, really difficult to make make sense unless you're paying cash. So I really like nice, medi small to medium-sized metro areas, not small towns, but like Chattanooga, Tennessee, great mm -hmm. size. There's growth coming in, there's jobs coming in, there are things happening, but it's not like a stagnant town, but it's also not like a Houston for example. Mm -hmm. But then a lot of people do really great in Houston because uh, it's still decently affordable, not as affordable as it used to be. But um, I, areas that there are jobs are typically going to be a good area to, yeah. um, to buy an investment property. If you can't do three, four, five houses in this scenario, does one make sense? I mean, I feel like getting started is the hardest part because you don't have that economies of scale. You can't do the, um, you know, property manager and things like that. What do you recommend to the person who wants to get started, but they can't do 10, so they don't have that economies of scale? For long-term? Uh, yeah. For long-term, um, I would say that the Burr method that I mentioned earlier would probably be the best way to go. So that's where you get a cheap house, rehab it, and then at the end, you make that basically you're making the house worth so much money that when you refinance it, you're able to pull out your down payment and your rehab costs and go do it again. So basically, you're taking one set of down payment and rehab costs and pulling it back out and putting it into another one and pulling it back out and put, putting it into another one. So uh, it's it, real estate is definitely a get rich slow game. Uh, you're probably gonna have to just, you know, uh, as my grandfather would have said, uh, eat some SHIT for a little while. <laughs> well, you know what I'm finding, by the way? It's funny we're talking. I was thinking about this this morning. There really isn't any other way. I don't care who you are. If you got rich fast, it's gambling or a handout, you know, or a, yeah. a trust fund. It just doesn't exist. So if you're going to eat it one way, you might as well do it in a way you enjoy. How do you determine likely rents in an area? What's the best tools? I'm sure there are many. Uh, high level, I would say just get on Zillow and look at the rental listings that are available and keep an eye and see when they go off market. Because if it's been sitting there for much longer than everything else, then either there's something wrong with it or they just want too much money. But Zillow, uh, apartments.com, uh, there's, there's lots of different little rental places, but Zillow is the easiest one. Oh, okay. All right. So let's transition into the short-term thing. And first I have to know if short-term rentals got you the cash flow to get you to almost 200 doors, why not just stick with short-term rentals and get all that cash flow? So I'll tell you what happened during COVID. Um, and this could happen to anything at any time, but the first week when it, it was like, okay, the country's shutting down and it was like this really scary thing. I remember thinking, oh, wow, the, the shoe has finally dropped. The other shoe has finally dropped, and there go the short terms. They were great, great while we had them, but here it is. It finally came. And so we sat around and watched Tiger King and ate Chick-fil-A for a few weeks, and then we realized that as things opened back up, the, the doors got blown off of our short terms. 
And what we really had to worry about, or let me back up a little bit. We, we were really happy that we had all of our long terms because we thought the short terms were, were dead. Right. Then it ended up being the opposite. The short terms got their doors blown off and we had to worry about the long terms with the eviction moratoriums. So that can happen the other way too. And I would rather have several different asset classes to support whichever asset class is affected by whatever's going on than just all in on one asset class and any economic factor can take that out. That's a great, great point. Getting back to that diversity element. It's just, yeah, one might work, but you never know. Right. In your mind, looking for short-term rental deals, how does that differ at all from long-term rental deals? For me, it's an entirely different type of market. So I would never try to have a short term in any of the markets that I own long terms in, although people do, and I'm sure they do really well. That's just not my model. For me, short terms, I only invest in regional drivable vacation rental markets. Uh, No metro markets, no big fly to vacation markets like Hawaii or Aspen. Uh, only the ones that the majority of the tourism that comes there and has ever come there is driving in. Um, And then in terms of figuring out what they should be able to make, there are a few different data sources that you can go to to check out. Uh, AirDNA is one. Rabu is another one, R-A-B-B-U. And I just recommend looking at as much market-wide data as possible and not rental history. So Rental history in short term, to me, when I'm looking at an investment, means nothing. It Mm. is what one random person has been able to do with one random property. And what's different about short term than long term, long term, the market rent is the market rent every single month, no matter who's managing it, uh, until you do some rehab to it. Short terms, it's a different price every single night. It's going to be a different price in July on a weekend than it is on January on a Tuesday. And the way that it's managed is going to determine how successful it is much more so than the property itself. So I don't care what somebody else did with it, especially if they didn't, if, if they weren't optimizing it. But I like to, you want to look at market-wide data and not just that one random data point of rental history. So analyzing a short term is definitely a little more fuzzy than long terms. Yeah, that feels like more of, more of the art than the science of long term. The right. short term feels like that art piece. What is the biggest lesson you've learned, not only in doing the short term, but in, you know, your, your firm, which helps people do it? You have got to have an ability to roll with the punches. Uh, people are going to do stuff in your house that you don't like. They're on vacation. They're probably drinking. They might have an extra person and you really just have to be able to be okay with that. Like we had one client, who she was constantly staring at her ring cameras. And we tell people, you want to have a ring camera so you can refer back in case anything happens, but don't look at it all day because you're going to drive yourself nuts. Mm. Uh, If they bring one extra person in, that one extra person is probably not going to single-handedly burn the house down, but you starting yelling at them or getting onto them about it is going to make them leave you a bad review, which is going to make you not be successful. It's also going to just tweak your anxiety all day. So, um... With that, uh, that I mean, that particular client, one time she yelled at a guy who, who was peeing off of her porch while he was peeing <laughs> off of her porch. So it feels a little invasive. Um, so, I love it. Yeah. Oh her inability to roll with the punches and just let that go is what ultimately made her 
uh, she still owns a few and she does all right, but I don't think she's as successful as she could be because she gets so hung up on everything. You have to just be able to be like, oh, crap happens. Let me fix this and move on. You know, I like I said, I've listened to a lot of people talk about rentals. I, I've watched YouTube videos. You probably more than anybody make it seem accessible. And I just I'm, I'm, I'm curious, accessible, doable, almost empowering. And I'm I just can't. I can't figure it out. Like it seems too good to be true. And I don't know what I'm missing. And what I mean by that is if you can deal with some bullshit and you can deal with people peeing off your balcony, like you can make a living on your own. Do you think that is just a fair, flat out statement? Yeah. Yeah. You have to be willing to get out of your comfort zone. It's most certainly not comfortable. And, uh, it, and you you do just have to be willing to deal with some bullshit. And a lot of people say that they're willing to deal with some bullshit. And then they're the first people to melt down when the bullshit happens. So that's a great point. All right. So let's talk about analyzing a short term deal. And then I want to talk about how the short term shop can help all of us who are feeling the same way I am right now, which is like, wait, I think I can actually do this. The vacation aspect is interesting to me. I was just in the Outer Banks one of my favorite places to go, staying in a big, beautiful house with my parents. And I'm trying to convince my dad to buy some rental properties. He's got money. He's getting older. He just sits on cash. Well, to an extent. And when I looked into it, it didn't make all the sense in the world due to seasonality. So how do we start to think about, is this worth it? Or uh, is the risk too high, whether it's seasonality, weather related? Where do you start? For me, I don't care about the seasonality. I care what the gross annual income is. So I own a four-bedroom cabin in the Smoky Mountains, also a four-bedroom beach house in Destin, Florida, a few blocks off the beach. Uh, I bought those in the same year, paid roughly the same price for each, so expenses are roughly the same. Uh, the place in the Smokies has an occupancy rate of about 87%. Wow. And the place in Destin has an occupancy rate of about 67% because it's on the beach, a little more seasonal. So if you're worried about seasonality, you're going to go with that Smokies property all day long. But in reality, the Destin house netted us $40,000 more last year than the Smokies house. It just did it all between March and the end of October, whereas the Smokies made a little bit less, but it was stretched out over a, a longer season in the year. So seasonality mm. is something a lot of people get tripped up on. But it's not something to be scared of as long as the gross annual income is there. You know, I don't care if I rent my house one night a year for a million dollars. That's still better than 365 nights a year at 10 bucks a night. So are you able or willing to tell us, maybe give us a little idea of where to start looking if we're interested in it? You know, it doesn't even have to be a city. Like what is... You know, if I were to say I've got the rest of the day, which I don't, but if I did, uh, I'm going to go look at some potential short term rentals. Where could I start? I would say to start, think of a place that you went when you were a kid or that you've been on vacation where the it's the majority of the people who go there are staying in a private home or condo rather than a hotel and look there, mm. dig in there. And then start doing some air DNA. And check the regulations too. Check the regulations first. Mm. So as soon as you come up with an idea for a city, like a lot of people, the first thing they would say would be Breckenridge. Well, Breckenridge has some really, really heavy regulations. So the first thing you want to do when you come up with that place is check the regulations because some places are more friendly than others. 
See, and this is a perfect example of, I think, a very small moat, right? A very small differentiator is you say that, I don't know what it means. What do I do? Do I call the city council and say, can I buy short-term rentals there? How does that work? Yeah. So if it's inside the city limits, then you call the city. If it's outside the city limits, you call county. But anything to do with, it'll be a different office in each area, but anything to do with the word codes, zoning, planning, ordinance, uh, typically those are the offices you want to call. And if you call the wrong person and say, Hey, I'm trying to figure out what the deal is with short-term rentals, they're going to be able to give you the number of the office that you do need to call. So it's okay to make the wrong first call. I was going to say, what's the worst part of short-term, but you think it's just dealing with all the crap because now you've got tenants every day instead of every year or two or three or five, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's two sides to that coin. It's a, you get rid of them faster if they suck. They're, well, they're gone in a couple days. Um, B, a lot of people think that you have to do a ton more maintenance on short terms than long terms. But with my short terms, there is a professional cleaner in there cleaning about two times a week. Whereas in my long terms, people that are living in there for two, three years or more are in there doing God knows what. I have no idea what it looks like. Um, so you're able, the upkeep is actually a little bit easier, <clears throat> a little more fluid with the short terms. But um, yeah, you really are just dealing with people and you'll get some, some real Karens in there, but the good news is they're checking out in a few days and you just kind of have to deal with it. And there's a different set of things to deal with, with long-term. So yeah, it's all got to deal with something or else everybody would be doing it. I was going to say, right. There's got to be something in it to make it difficult. So tell us the thing to make it difficult. That's so true. You mentioned (laughs) about the short-term shop. What do you do there? What is the specialty of the short-term shop? We only work with buyers and sellers of short-term rentals. We don't work with any other type of client. If you come to us and want to buy a primary home, sorry, we don't do that. Or sell a primary home or a long-term rental or anything like that. Only short-terms. And we have offices in 11 markets. Do you help people find the deals? Yeah, yeah. So we help them find the deal. We act as their real estate agents, you know, take them through that whole process. But then the main thing is we teach them how to manage their property. So how to make them successful so that when they are successful, they're going to come back and buy another one with us. So Mm. that rising tide raises all the ships. What's an example of a system that the short-term shop would help with to make my life as a short-term investor easier? So we would teach you how to use the property management software to automate everything. Um, The main one we use is Guesty. There are a few other ones, Owner Res, Hospitable. uh, And we can give you a high-level overview of most of them. But the ones that we have, the one that we have the most experience with because we use it ourselves is Guesty. Guesty, okay. What what does that do exactly? Because you say the the management (laughs) software, but what are we accomplishing with that? Yeah. So your property management software, it takes all of the listings that you have. So if you have two, three, four, five, however many properties, and they're spread across Airbnb, VRBO, however many booking sites, it brings all of those listings into one dashboard. So if you need to edit stuff, you just edit it in the dashboard, it blasts it out to everything else. But the most important thing that it does is it automates a lot of the communication. So when a guest messages you, it will automatically respond to them with you can, you have to tailor it because you learn as time goes on what questions they typically ask when they first message. So you tailor that auto response to answer all of those questions and more. Uh, and then we, ours is set up to automatically send them their check-in instructions and directions the day before check-in, automatically sends them check-out instructions the day before check-out. And it also automates the 
cal- the cleaning calendar with your cleaner's calendar. So whatever oh, wow. calendar they use, whether it's Gmail or uh, Outlook or iCal or whatever, when someone books on any of those platforms, it sends a calendar alert to your cleaner's calendar so that they know as soon as somebody books, oh, I have to go clean that day. That's pretty brilliant. That's a good, that's a good program there. How did you come (laughs) up with the idea for the short-term shop? It was just me for several years. And on probably our second short-term rental, I just realized there weren't really any agents in the space who could answer any of our questions on it. Well, how much do you think this should make? Or how do I find a cleaner? What do you think about this? Nobody could answer any of that. So I was hating my corporate job anyway. So I just got my license, bridged that gap and became that agent was not expecting for it to become what it has. And uh, I just, when I started having too many clients that I could possibly help myself, probably waited too long on that. um, I just started hiring agents to help me and I would offload uh, some of the clients onto them and I'm still there to like help, but you know, they're helping and I'm able to delegate. So now we have 45 agents in 11 markets. In building this business, and again, I love this story. It's relatable and authentic, but also a success, right? And so, so many people that I've talked to who have become successful business owners as well, I didn't anticipate it it to become this. It was a thing I saw, I did it, kind of got a little bigger, and whoop, here we are today. What do you think contributed most to your success in growing the business component? Not the rental part, but the short-term shop. And I'm talking about you. Like, what did you do? What do you do well that you think got it to what is a very successful business? For me, it was my experience as an investor that made other investors say, okay, this is somebody I want to work with because she gets it. Mm. Uh, And, you know, there are a lot of agents who do work in the types of markets that we work in, but they just don't really get it. They just don't understand why, why would you want to self-manage it? Why would you want to do that? Like, they just don't have an investor mindset and- it really helps if the person that you're working with is also an investor. So they understand, Oh, they know exactly how I feel right now. And I'm really pissed off about this one teeny tiny little thing on the inspection report. That is not a big deal, but I'm putting a lot of money into this. So I'm just kind of freaking out. Like I understand that I've been there. I remember those days. So, um, I think it was really that experience that, that kind of catapulted me. Let's say, like I said, I have listened I said, I don't know. I don't know what it is about Avery and the short-term shop, but I'm sold. Uh, What does it look like? What does engaging with you all look like? So uh, if you want to come work with us as your agents, you would first go to our website, theshorttermshop.com, and click that book a consultation button. Uh, That would be a group call with me. We're going to go over a bunch of the FAQs about investing in the markets that we work in. A few things that are different about the contract process of buying short-term rentals versus long-term and the process for working with us. And then after that, uh, we assign people out to the different agents in the different markets that they want to work in. So uh, it's a little different process. It's not just picking up the phone and calling one of the agents and getting them immediately. Everybody has to come talk to me first. And uh, then we get everybody out to their agents. So then everybody's on the same page. They have a competitive competitive advantage of kind of knowing and having basically, you know, a 45-minute class on how the market works before they go out there and start making offers. And um, then we get them under contract. Then we teach them how to run it. And then we're available for support basically forever. <laughs> and then rinse, repeat, right? Mm-hmm. I Pretty take much. my profits. I do it again. I call your agent. Yep. Exactly. I don't know. I think you just got a client. I think I got to look at that. I, I don't know. I got to sit on. back and say, what's what am I missing? Because I tend to be a skeptic, but 
I mean, to your point, you just look back and say, well, if I would have just done this five years ago, and I think you could say that at almost any point in the last at least 50, 75 years. Yeah. Well, Avery, I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a uh, information packed. Thank you for, for sharing your experience and your insight so readily. Uh, we'll link to it. So you've got the short-term shop, uh, your book, Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth, and your podcast, The Short-Term Show. Anywhere else that uh, or actions you would like our listeners to take if this is something they're curious about? Uh, follow me on Instagram at The Short-Term Shop. Here's the question. Where should they start? Would they, should they go to your website first? Should they listen to the pod, read the book? I mean, where's the starting point? Or does it depend on where you are in your journey? I guess it just depends. So if you're like really, really green and want to learn all about it, I would say listen to all the podcast episodes, read the book. We also have a YouTube channel, by the way. I totally skipped over that. Mm -hmm. uh, do all that self-education stuff first. And when you're like, all right, this is what I want to do. I want to come buy one of these, then book a consultation with us. But I mean, you can go in any order you want. From a, not even a net worth perspective, an investable assets perspective, what do you recommend based on the different types of investments? So maybe it's the long term. Well, you don't do that in your shop. So let's say for short term, uh, what do you recommend people be willing to have? In terms of what, like how many or how leveraged or what do you mean? So let's say I came to you and I was like, hey, I want to do this short term thing. Uh, I just want to start with one and get my feet wet. What would you say like, hey, you're going to have to have at least this much ready to just go out the door in terms of cash? Um, In terms of cash. So most of the markets that we operate in, if you're going to get a condo, you're looking at like 300000 probably. Mm -hmm. uh, so whether you want to do a 15% or 20% down, that's up to you. Um, and then for single families, you're looking at about 500000 to get in on like a three bedroom. Okay. Sometimes a two bedroom, depending on the market. Like the Smokies now are the most expensive of any market. And that's because, you know, back in the day, you could get a 100% return on cash on cash return in your first year, which is absurd. It's completely yeah. absurd. Uh, can't get that now. You can get around 30, which is still better than a lot of, than most other asset classes. So, um, but that's why that one blew up so hard because you could get just really ridiculous numbers. I saw that. Do you think there's any place left in the U.S. with similar numbers or is that ship just sailed? Oh, I'm sure there is. Yeah. There's got to be. Yeah. 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 I looked at the the Smokies not too long ago. I was like, wow, these houses got expensive yeah. fast. What about if I want to dip my toes into long term? So if I'm looking at $130,000 houses, are you saying something like maybe it's 40 grand? So it's the down payment, closing costs and a little bit to renovate and you could probably be up and running. Yeah, I would say about that. Do you ever recommend people put less than say that 15, 20% down? I've heard things. I don't know much about it, but like 3% down loans, 5% down loans. I don't know anything about that. Yeah. So there is what's called a 10% down vacation home loan. Uh, that loan type gets abused very often by short-term rental investors. So you are allowed to put a vacation home on Airbnb and VRBO, but you do have to intend to use it part of the year as a vacation home. Right now, the Fannie Mae guidelines are, I think, 15 days. So it's really not long at all. Hmm. But we see a lot of investors who are like trying to start funds and have all these partners that are like, okay, well, all you have to do is put 10% down and you put 10% and I'm going to take half the equity. And that's like, that's mortgage fraud, basically. So right. I always tell people like, yeah, you can absolutely do a 10% down vacation home loan, but you do have to like that does have to be your vacation home. And two weeks a year is not that much. And you right. are allowed to rent it out when you're not there. But just make sure that you are not committing mortgage fraud when you do that. 
Yeah, that's one of the things I would recommend avoiding as well. So that's yeah. <laughs> good. Well, Avery, again, thank you so much. The shorttermshop.com is the place to go for everybody listening. Appreciate your time and sharing your knowledge with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This week's episode featured Avery Carl, was hosted as always by Chris Stemp, and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Avery's book, Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth, Your Guide to Analyzing, Buying, and Managing Vacation Properties, is available wherever books are sold. And now for the quick housekeeping items. If you ever want to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you enjoy the podcast, and would like to help us out, I ask you to head over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast, where if you're looking for an easy and free way to support the show, just tell a friend about Smart People Podcast, post on social media, do whatever it is that you do, and we truly appreciate it. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode. Next episode.